Dr. Macias is an associate professor in pathology at Washington University in St. Louis. She graduated from medical school in Fortaleza, Brazil, followed by residency in anatomic and clinical pathology at University of Maryland. Dr. Macias then further pursued a fellowship in renal pathology at Johns Hopkins uh, Medical Center. Uh, since then, she has worked at uh, several academic institutions and had a long stint in renal pathology service at Arcana Laboratories in Little Rock, Arkansas. Dr. Macias has several uh, high impact factor journal articles to her credit and has a long and successful record of uh, teaching several uh, fellows, visiting fellows, including myself when I uh, went over to Little Rock and she took me under her wing and got me started on renal pathology. Uh, we are very excited to have her talk to us. She is going to give her talk on digging deeper into renal pathology. So without further ado, Dr. Macias, you can launch us off. Thank you, Dr. Rastagi. I'm sorry. Um, thank you, Dr. Rastaki, for such a kind introduction. Um, the pathway has been long, but hopefully I have but some experience together that I can share with you today. I'd like to thank you for the invitation to present this to you. In this uh, lecture has a broader theme, a broader theme about digging deeper in renal pathology. It's gonna be a case-based conference lecture um, that we're gonna try to convey certain experience here. So, first I'd like to say I don't have any financial disclosures related to this lecture. But you might still be trying to understand that after this brief introduction, what is really what we're gonna talk about. So what is digging deeper in renal pathology? What are we talking about here? You might have noticed that I have an accent and as Dr. Astagio mentioned, I'm not originally from America, I'm Brazilian. So usually I like to start looking at things in the dictionary when I don't know very much of what I'm talking about. And uh, I like to start with the definitions of dig deeper. Dig deeper is an expression that you can find if you dig deep, you do a very thorough investigation into something. This is what Collins Dictionary says. So doing a very thorough investigation into something. The other, the other definition is to make a lot of effort with all one's resources. That's what we're going to try to do in pathology, in renal pathology specifically. Do fewer investigations and use all of our resources. An example of this sentence is that if you want to join the Marines, you really have to dig deep. In my mind, if I were to use that in a sentence, I would say that if you want to be a doctor, you have to dig deeper, not only deep. Because in, in essence, isn't that the art and science of medicine to use all of our resources and to do through investigations to ultimately benefit the patient, right? So um, curiosus is the essence, curiosity is the essence of digging deeper and is the essence of medicine. But if medicine, if in medicine we are curious, I would like to introduce you to the doctor's doctor, and it's the pathologist. So the pathologist is the one that likes um, to dig deeper, probably as much as everybody else is what we do in pathology, using all the resources available, which sometimes can take time, um, but is necessarily what makes our specialty um, pertinent. And among the pathologists, we have the renal pathologists, which uh, 
is unique in terms that uh, to make a renal pathology diagnosis, we have to put together several pieces and really go into several layers of uh, digging, let's say, to come to a diagnosis. Why most pathologists may make use of H&E slides, some stains, we, by routine, we use, we use several different techniques to get your diagnosis. That's why everybody loves renal pathology. And uh, the pathologists among you must know that uh, there is a, an infinite number of people that want to go to renal pathology, right? Um, that was the conventional approach of renal pathology, though, is that we use clinical history, immunofluorescence, light microscopy, and light microscopy in control diagnosis. However, over the past years, that uh, level of uh, investigation has only become more complex. As in medicine in general, we have added several layers to finally arrive to a diagnosis. So, Along with clinical history, we have the exam, several clinical labs, imaging studies, but on our side on pathology, light microscopy is uh, seen in combination of several special stains, immunohistochemistry, immunofluorescence, paraffin immunofluorescence, electron microscopy, mesospec, and more recently genetic panels, AI and digital pathology have also played a very important role into the diagnosis. So what is our goal when we try to dig deeper and use all of our resources? Our goal at the center of it is to improve patient care. But through digging deeper, we, we're going to be able to limit our limitations, unmask what is not seen or unseen, and broaden our knowledge. I'd like to present you a series of cases of uh, how we can dig deep in renal pathology and be able to improve patient care limiting our limitations, unmasking what is unseen, and broadening our knowledge. So without further ado, let's go to the first case, where you're going to make use of some techniques in pathology that are going to limit our limitations. In the first case is a 26-year-old female patient who presented with proteinuria, non-nephrotic, 1.3 grams for 24 hours, and hematuria. She had an elevated creatinine of 1.3, a positive ANA, and a history of hypertension and obesity. Does anyone have a hint of the diagnosis here, or what would be the first thing that crosses your mind? Any participation? IGA is the first one, and then I love this diagnosis. So let's run with it. This was the light microscopy. It was a great light microscopy. We have several glomeruli. There is some chronicity that you already can see with the blue on the trichrome stain, but not as much. And there's some glomeruli more normal, some not so normal. And we go through the case as good renal pathologists that we are, take a closer look at the glomeruli, and we have very easy to see mesangial expansion and mesangial hypercellularity. The mesangial areas are really increased. So I guess that the, if I think of an IgA, this definitely would fit the profile that I would expect. Other lesions that were also present were areas of segmental glomerulosclerosis, as you see here. All this area has additions to the Bowman's caps, and we have sclerosis, along with the mesangial changes. So the definition of IgA nephropathy is, however, not defined on what we see on the light microscopy, right? To give a diagnosis of IgA nephropathy, you would like to see IgA at the very least. So let's go to the second layer of this case, and that would be the immunofluorescence. And unfortunately, too bad, so sad, the immunofluorescence did not have glomeruli. We had a sample that only had renal medulla. Immunofluorescence is not all. We have another layer, which is the electron microscopy. 
In the electron microscopy, this is the messenger area. We have your messenger cells, this is the nuclei. And on the messenger matrix, you can see well-defined electron dense deposits. So on the electron microscopy, we had mesangio electron dense deposits. Very well, but in all together, our several layers, we had a patient with proteinuria, hematuria, positive ANA, a mesangio proliferative glomerulonephritis, mesangio electron dense deposits by electron microscopy, and nothing by immunofluorescence. So at this point, what is the diagnosis that I can give it to you? Definitely, I cannot call this case an IgA nephropathy yet because I don't have the IgA. So this goes into a broad category of a mesangial proliferative glomerulonephritis with mesangial deposits that I know they are there. Still a very frustrating diagnosis, especially when I talk to you guys. This, this is a broad diagnosis that could lead to a series of very different categories. IgA can give this kind of uh, uh, histopathologic features. This could be a lupus nephritis. Remember, she has a slightly positive ANA. And least likely, but still within the differential diagnosis, would be a citric glomerulopathy among common diagnoses. So when I report this diagnosis to the nephrologists, this, this probably elicits as many questions as it does gives answers. At this time is where we go to a deeper uh, phase of our investigation. We're gonna dig deeper. And the way how we're gonna dig deeper on this case is add the paraffin immunofluorescence technique. And when you join uh, immunofluorescence on the paraffin block, that as you recall, had several glomeruli, we are able to detect that indeed we had IgA nephropathy because we only have IgA, kappa, lambda, and C3 in absence of the other immunoglobulins. With, that, with this in my mind, what was this much more vague diagnosis of a mesangial proliferative glomerulonephritis with deposits? becomes, through the use of paraffin-IF, a very firm diagnosis of IgA nephropathy. And here I'd like to introduce you the technique that we're going to talk about today, is the immunofluorescence on paraffin sections, also known as paraffin immunofluorescence, some people call it PIF. And it's a technique that has been described several years ago, probably in the 70s, 80s, but in 2006 was brought back to light by the Columbia Group, when they described this paper became kind of a, a very important in our era of renal pathology, was the use of immunofluorescence as a savage technique for renal biopsies. And what they found is that uh, most of the diseases that they didn't have material for use of immunofluorescence, they could take out from the paraffin block and you still find a significant amount of positivity and give diagnosis like IgA that we just gave or lupus or membranos and so on and so forth. So <clears throat> what's the difference between the paraffin IF versus the routine IF? The first one is obvious, is a performed on paraffin embedded tissue. It requires an antigen retrieval step, which is usually heat or protease digestion. And you submit the tissue in different fixatives, the Michel or Zeus preservative versus formalin. What does this mean here is that it comes in two different bottles, as you very well know, and the tissue that is in formalin is different from the tissue from immunofluorescence, which means that this one may have glomeruli and we can use when we don't have tissue on the immunofluorescence. And this is, the step that we call digging deeper. And with that, we can limit our limitations. We had a limitation that we just uh, decided to fight with this technique. Now, I promise you that uh, through this uh, process of digging deeper, we can do more than limit our limitations. And the second case is gonna tell you 
how we can unmask what is unseen. Our clinical history in this patient is much more complex than the first one. And I probably need the help of our clinicians here to tell me your opinions. Um, this was a 61-year-old female. She presented with acute renal failure. Her serum creatinine went from 0.9 to 5.3. Proteinuria was significant, 15.6 grams. And she also had hematuria, so a nephrotic nephritic sort of syndrome. There was a history of diabetes. There was a history of hypertension. She also had the history of an abscess that was drained two weeks prior to biopsy. The complement levels were decreased. And of course, as a majority of the patients that I see, um, what is complicated always becomes more complicated. And she also had a monoclonal IgG kappa spike on SPAP. Hepatitis spin on this patient was negative. Any takers? Multiple myeloma, completely fair diagnosis, especially in a conference, right? Yep. <laughs> PIG, proliferate post-infectious glomerulonephrite is excellent. And with uh, this history of an abscess, definitely there. Could this be just diabetes with ATN? It could as well, right? I guess that's why you guys biopsy with such distinct possibilities. True. So with that in mind, we, we're going to go ahead and look at the biopsy. And there is where your pathologists are going to show to you that is a very good biopsy, have several cores and several glomeruli. And we're going to take a closer look on those glomeruli and see that here, mesangial expansion is not necessarily the problem. Can anyone try to describe what they are seeing here? I see the capillary loops are plugged with nuclei. So some endocapillary hypercellularity. Yes, very good. I think it comes easier when also we have the label on it, but it's absolutely right, right? Um, so the capillary loops are filled with cells. So in this case, we do have an endocapillary, um, a proliferative form of glomerulonephritis. Sometimes this can happen in the presence of multiple myeloma, but it's not what we would think as a myeloma cast nephropathy, at least not what I would like to present to you. One thing I would also like to ask in the previous uh, picture, Nijia, is yeah. are there some double contours like between three o'clock and seven o'clock in this picture? There are, there are some, uh, Brina. Okay. You have some here, for mm -hmm. example. Mm -hmm. uh, you have some, some here old. as well. Yeah, you said between, there are double yeah, contours here. You can see some. Right. Okay, yeah. And, and uh, you could also mention that here and there you have those little pink globules, right? But you're uh -huh. gonna have more of them as well. Okay. This is the super stain and, and you're absolutely correct. You're very shrewd renal pathologist uh, and uh, you observe it on the H&E, which what on the super stain sometimes can be highlighted, which is the presence of double contours. Double contours is a, is a word that may uh, that shows as uh, is kind of, is the word that if it shows up in a test you should think of MPGN, but it's also the word that for us we think of, of the MPGN pattern. So membrane proliferative pattern of glomerulonephritis is uh, very much so characterized by the presence of double contours, and of course the word includes proliferative. So the presence of endocapillary hypercellularity does not get away from the diagnosis. Dr. Dai already mentioned here about masked cryo, and that is certainly a definition. But let's go one slide at a time. Why? 
And um, in this slide, probably a possibility even increases because you have hyaline deposits. So hyaline deposits, they tend to be immunoglobulin material in the majority of the proliferative type of glomerulonephritis. If this was lupus, it would highlight with everything. So we come to the immunofluorescence. On the light microscopy, what we just described was a membrane proliferative pattern of glomerulonephritis. In the immunofluorescence, what I find is several glomeruli were present on this case. This was not a case that I had renal medulla only. And what I have there are glomeruli that stain strongly with C3, correlating very well with the low complement levels. However, when I go to the immunoglobulins, and I'm going to show you here pictures of the IgG and IgM, they were mostly negative. IgA, kappa, and lambda are also negative. On the electron microscopy, we see findings that are very similar to what we have already observed on the light microscopy. Those are capillary loops. They are filled with uh, uh, cells. So there is endocapillary hypercellularity, as we have seen before. And if we take a closer look, you're going to see also that you have electron dense deposits. And those electron dense deposits in this picture, they are mostly subendothelial. Well, in summary, what we have is a patient that showed with a kidney injury, proteinuria, hematuria, and uh, several comorbidities. There was a membrane proliferative glomerulonephritis. C3 was positive. All the others were negative. And there were subendothelial electron dense deposits. Anyone take a guess of where can we go with this diagnosis as it is right now? Because nothing is missing, obviously. Okay, let's go for the next slide. I'm going to throw two differential diagnoses here. This is a membrane proliferative glomerulonephritis with C3 deposits. There are two lines that you can interpret this findings. One is that you can call it an infection-associated glomerulonephritis, or you can call it C3 glomerulonephritis. And some purists would say this is C3GN. I tend to be a little bit more cautious when I give diagnosis. I like to start with the clinical history, and I understand this patient had a history of an abscess. And someone already mentioned that this very well could be a post-infectious. The term that we use nowadays is infection-associated glomerulonephritis. And I would favor that rather than C3GN. Probably add a comment about C3 glomerulonephritis should be within the differential diagnosis. Let's get the cell phone and call our friend nephrologist. And right here, I'm ready to sign the case, right? Reporting the findings, I say, I'm very confident on what I have. And I say, any questions? Well, yeah, it makes sense. But that IgG kappa positive, hematology was worried about the lymphoma. Is there anything on the biopsy like that? And in my mind, I go, oh, kappa and lambda was all negative, but was it? So I go back, let me double check the case and join immunofluorescence on paraffin. And what I see there is that IgG, when we use the paraffin immunofluorescence, which was negative on the routine immunofluorescence, turns out to be strongly positive, including on those hyaline deposits that we mentioned before. Is also positive for kappa, but the lambda light chains are negative in the glomeruli. So this is an IgG kappa restricted process. So what we had is membrane proliferative glomerulonephritis with C3 deposits, then it should be a membrane proliferative glomerulonephritis with IgG kappa deposits. This could be what today we call the PG and IMMD or a form of MGRS, or cryotype 1, because of those hyaline deposits as well. Completely different diagnosis from what we had before, right? And this is the step that we dig deeper 
and we unmask the unseen. We unmask what was not there. So this is a paper we published in 2015 in paraffin fluorescence in Renal Pathology Laboratory, more than a savage technique. Within our cohort of patients, we observed that we did paraffin immunofluorescence uh, very broadly, and we observed that uh, um, in 32% of the cases, we're actually looking for mask deposits. So about of the third of the cases, we're looking for mask deposits. This process of mask deposits was initially described in patients with uh, crystalline tubulopathy due to light chain. So light chain tubulopathy or light chain tubulopathy with crystals. Usually we know that the light chains on immunofluorescence in those cases, they tend not to stain with immunofluorescence. However, when you do the paraffin immunofluorescence, those cases tend to be positive. And we started to observe that the same could also happen in cases with glomerulonephritis. So we did this in about a third of the, our patients and a third of those patients that did this process to unmask uh, the unmasked deposits that we have not seen before. In a third of those, we contributed, uh, the results contributed to the correct diagnosis as it did in this case. So digging deeper, we can limit our limitations, but we can also unmask the unseen. Our third instance that uh, we could be helped by a mentality of curiosity and of digging deeper is uh, broadening our knowledge. So can we do more with this technique? Clinical history, and again, I'm gonna need your help. This was a 27-year-old Caucasian female presented with proteinuria and hematuria during pregnancy. Proteinuria was about one gram and even several months after the delivery, it was present. She had normal renal function in a positive DNA, positive double-strand DNA, positive SSA, all at low levels. However, there were no other signs of lupus, no other clinical medical history, no symptoms. Everything else was otherwise quite unremarkable in this patient. Any takers? Are you gonna say you need to do a renal biopsy? Very well. What we got on the light microscopy was a biopsy with uh, several glomeruli. And uh, in this case, there was some mesangial expansion, but what called attention to the pathologist was the presence of multiple vacuoles along the capillary loops, multiple pinholes. Pinholes is a code word that we use for membranous nephropathy in pathology. And hopefully here you can see even, it's easier to see that you have those holes along the glomerular capillary loops. And they were large, they were not usually small. They were very easy to see, prominent. Trichrome stain usually tends to highlight immunocomplex deposits and they were kind of filling the space where those holes are. So my hypothesis on the light microscopy is that this patient had a form of membranous glomerulopathy. It only did not make as much sense because the patient was not fully nephrotic, but we have seen this before, patients with membranous that in certain stages of the disease are not so nephrotic when they present. It was odd overall to have uh, the rest of the clinical history, but we followed with that based on the histology. However, for a membranous diagnosis, what do I expect on the immunofluorescence? I would expect a diffuse granular staining of the capillary loops with IgG and C3. And if one can argue with me that there was trace C3, nobody can argue that this was a completely negative IgG staining. Kappa and lambda were also completely negative when they are usually present in patients with membranous. Well, Maybe I was seeing things on the light microscopy. So let's see on the electron microscopy what we had. 
And on the electron microscopy, the findings of the light microscopy are actually confirmed. Here we have several, not difficult to see, subepithelial deposits. So those are large and bodacious, some subendothelial deposits as well, a number of mesangial deposits were also present. It looked like a membranous in many ways, and at the same time, not as much. Especially not as much when I think that we didn't have immunofluorescence staining on this case. So what was going on? For the ones that have not seen, this is a higher power of the subepithelial deposits. And our summary of findings goes that this was a young patient, non-nephrotic proteinuria, hematuria, positive autoimmune serologists. The light microscopy looked like a membranous glomerulopathy. The immunofluorescence was all negative, and there were multiple large subepithelial electron dense deposits. So I used my YouTube inspiration here and thought, this is a membranous like glomerulopathy with and without deposits. <laughs> so, to report the findings of those very, this very unusual case, I had more questions than answers. And at this time, instead of learning from my previous experience, instead of just in, um, calling you guys and giving this very odd diagnosis, I decided to go a step further. And uh, when we did paraffin immunofluorescence, the same finding that we had before of unmasking the deposits was also seen. We were able to unmask IgG, unmask C3, unmask kappa, but lambda was pretty much negative. And with that, what was already a very confusing diagnosis with paraffin IF became a little bit more clear. It was a membranous glomerulopathy with IgG kappa deposits. And the big question in my mind at this point is this on MGRS. Calling the physician, well, does not seem to fit. Surprise, this is a young patient. There is no nephrotic syndrome for this diagnosis of membranes. There is no MGUS. Autoimmune serologists are positive. Are you sure this is the right case? And we asked ourselves, did we do something wrong on this case? Did we use a wrong stain? We repeated the immunofluorescence. The immunofluorescence had the same negative results. And the case was what it was, as you just seen. Still, with this diagnosis, many questions were still posed. And at this time, we're going to go to the animal that dig the deepest, tightest burrows of all. This is the goannas. But within our medical life, those are the scientists, right? And that's what we, we try to be sometimes when we don't have all the answers. <laughs> and uh, the group at Arcana, um, I was included at the time. We described this disease as a membranous-like glomerulopathy with masked IgG kappa deposits. Our first cohort had 14 cases. They were young female, mean age of 26 years. They had numerous large subepithelial deposits in the electron microscopy. The immunofluorescence was typically negative, but when we did the paraffin immunofluorescence, we were able to unmask those deposits. They have strong IgG kappa deposits. Curiously, those patients also had vague autoimmune phenomenon. So we proposed this category that uh, did not really fit neatly into any diagnostic category that has been described. And it, it was called membranous-like glomerulopathy with masked IgG kappa deposits. Down the road, we got more patients together 41 patients in the second series. The clinical data was confirming that this time we also uh, described that the, the, the serologic results, SPEP and UPEP, um, there was uh, no evidence really of a presence of monoclonal change on protein electrophoresis. So out of 26 patients, 25 had negative protein electrophoresis. 
there was no, no evidence of underlying hematological neoplasia. So it was a disease that not only the pathology was unusual, but the pathology would not fit with what was expected in terms of this monotypical, monotypical monoclonal sort of presentation in terms of clinic. So continuing the investigation, uh, later on, the same group described that the seronamyloid P component deposition, that is a protein, is a sensitive and specific feature for our disease, membranes like glomerulopathy with masked IgG kappa deposits. So by measure spec, we defined that those deposits actually consist of SAP, they're co-localized with IgG, and they stain in they stain in, uh, in the glomerular deposits have a sensitivity of 100%. After we describe the SAP, we have done SAP in several other cases, and um, there's actually amply, uh, amply um, amplified the, the range of the disease. Instead of uh, some of the cases, we found out that they were masked. Some cases were not masked, but had very weak staining. And... Um, Although the majority were masked, some were not. Some of them were very membranous. Most of the cases were membranous, but we start to see that some of the cases have more of a proliferative or focal proliferative GN. We saw cases that only had mesangial deposits without the membranous features. So the idea is that today, more and more we would advocate without much success is still uh, to call this a seronamyloid P or SAP associated glomerulopathy. Hey, Nidia, just quick, quick comment on that one. So I believe uh, um, uh, serum amyloid P is also highly enriched in all amyloid case. Yes, it right. is. So, yeah, so it how is. do you call this specific? So it means that you need uh, amyloid P plus something else to call it? Uh, we, we, thought, we thought that the, the SAP worked as a marker if it is really what is causing the disease, we don't know for sure, but um, it's, it's, a, it's a very good sensitive marker. So what is going on in terms of molecular level, for sure, um, we don't know, but it co-localizes with all the deposits as we have seen. But this is a good, this is a good point because calling this an SAP-associated glomerulopathy may mislead the clinicians or the patients to think that this is amyloidosis, when actually this is not amyloidosis. Those cases are not Congo red positive. We don't have the beta sheet formation of amyloid in those. We just have the protein. But that, that is a good point. So with paraffin IF, we got to a diagnosis of a disease that uh, to a certain point it was still, it, it was a good diagnosis, but it was still a little bit vague. It's a membranous-like glomerulopathy with IgG kappa deposits. And um, with the SAP staining and some research, we got to actually identify a clinical pathological uh, phenomenon, actually. And it's very important to have this and uh, talk to those patients. Several of those patients, that are, they, are, they, they tend to be female, Several of those patients, they are in the postpartum or pregnancy stage, which is interesting because we started all of a sudden seeing all those patients we think we thought would be eclampsia or preeclampsia or so on. And then it should be a disease completely different. The other bias is that you have positive serologies for autoimmune disorders. And this likely is some form of autoimmune disorder in terms of a we are having here some, some form of autoimmune, uh, probably mediated disease, but not lupus, for example, which is what you would originally think on a patient that has positive ANA, positive anti-double strain DNA in the young patients. So we had a completely different category of patients after we studied those. And with that, we broaden our knowledge. And we went, I hope that for this range, we saw that digging deeper, we were able just to do different things. 
but we have to keep our curiosity when we encounter things that uh, don't seem to fit, right? Talking a little bit more about paraffin IF, which is an area that I studied a lot. Um, why, why do we have paraffin IF doing all those wonderful things I already mentioned to you? And I guess that the idea is that, oh, should we do paraffin IF in every case? And, and no, please, no. That's not what I'm trying to advocate here. But there are some things on paraffin IF that are unique. Um, why does it work the way it does? Um, some, some uh, always conjecture, always hypothesis, but one of the things is that all those papers published in paraffin IF, usually I use it uh, in material that was preserved on Michelle Azul's transport media. So one of the hypotheses is that it's not that the paraffin IF is that great, but during the processing of the IF, we're adding something that might be damaging the proteins that are in the transport media, or maybe not preserving. Uh, when, you, when we use formalin, you create a, we, you created a bonded link between the proteins that preserve a lot of the antigenicity. So maybe the formalin fixation is the trick during the paraffin IF, that we can preserve those antigens bound during the formalin fixation. And that preservation may wash those antigens they wash during the, the immunofluorescence process. So when we use the formalin, we preserve and we're able to unmask those in the tissue from paraffin. The other hypothesis is that uh, when we use the retrieval steps that I mentioned before, usually the paraffin IF, you have to do retrieval steps through heat or through a protease digestion process. And uh, maybe when we use those retrieval steps, we expose sites that were not clearly identified. In certain things like crystals, for example, maybe they have a certain configuration also that is not completely um, exposed, but once we have the retrieval steps, we have an exposure of those antigenic sites. So those are all the hypotheses behind what happens during the paraffin immunofluorescence. But um, we don't know for sure. We know that this is a technique that we have used. And uh, in the right hands, it can be very successful. Caveats with the paraffin immunofluorescence is that it is more difficult to interpret. It may take more um, antigen material, uh, uh, more antibody material, more, so it, it may become more expensive. So it's not something that we use in all cases. And it has a sensitivity issue as well. So diseases like anti-GBM anti disease, for example, uh, are ones that almost never stain very well with paraffin IF. C3 and C1Q, the complements cascade, usually doesn't stand as strongly with paraffin IF as immunofluorescence. So in the vast majority of cases, is not a very sensitive technique if you compare it with routine IF. But in a number of cases, it can really be helpful. Indications on use of paraffin IF. Of course, if you don't have tissue, if you suspect light chain or crystalline tubulopathy, when you have those MPGN, MPGN features, with negative IF stains, it might be worth to look if you don't have anything masked. If you have membranous nephropathy, something that looks like a membranous, like in the last case, that has negative IF stains, might be worth to investigate. If you have something that you call in C3 glomerulopathy, but you have comorbidities, especially monoclonal diseases, or autoimmune disorders, it might be worth to stain. And fibrillar IgN with monotypic deposits. Fibrillar IgN with monotypic deposits, when you do paraffin IF, tends to be polytypic rather than monotypic. So instead of actually showing something that is monoclonal, you're going to show something polytypic. So <clears throat> I hope that through this presentation, I was able to introduce to you certain um, amount of new knowledge or or rare cases that we don't see that often, but that we got there for digging deeper. And by digging deeper, I mean being curious, using all of our resources. 
doing a full investigation. The reason why we do this in pathology is the same that we do in medicine in general, is for the benefit of the patient. And when we limit our limitations, mask what is unseen and broaden our knowledge, who wins on all of that is the patient and patient care in general. I'd like to thank you for your time. Open to visits. Please, if you're in St. Louis, um, come and visit or feel free to email me with any questions. Um, if you want to work ever in collaboration and uh, Dr. Rastaji, Dr. Daofu, um, um, Dr. Dai, <laughs> uh, they are also very dear to me and um, um, I'm always happy, to, happy to, to be in touch. Thank you for your time, everyone. Do we have time for a question? Sure. Thank you for coming to present. That was great. I'm trying to get a final on the second case. Would you call that C3G secondary to multiple myeloma or an MGRS? I would not call C3G because when we did, when we did the immunofluorescence, we got the G-kappa, which was also very strong. So... I would call that a, a, a proliferative glomerulonephritis or MPGN with masked IgG deposits or a cryo, if that's the case, if the patient had a cryo. But I would definitely put it the category of MGRS. But you had Not, a very strong C3 staining. Well, the C3, the C3 staining I would preserve on cases that I didn't, that I would not be able to unmask the the immunoglobulins as strongly as on that. The other things on that case, and then those are more, more detailed and nuanced the renal pathology, but coming to the details that would argue against C3GN, C3GN tends to be more mesangial and um, or more like DDD that the deposits are within the basement membranes themselves rather than so subendothelial as in those ones. So I didn't see as many uh, of the typical C3GN deposits in that case, but mostly the very strongest staining with the immunoglobulins would dissuade me from that diagnosis. Would make me much less favored. Thank you. You're welcome. Hi, Nidia, a very nice presentation. So uh, you have moved to wash you for a while, right? So how often you unmask <laughs> compared to uh, Arcana Lab? So, I moved to Washu in, in September, Daofu. It, it's pretty recent, and we actually are in the process of uh, uh, placing the, the paraffin IF here. So I'm talking more from, from past experience and from what I've, I hope to be previous, uh, uh, I hope to be future experience. Unmasking is not common, though, it's an uncommon, it's an uncommon um, technique. Uh, when we were in Arcana, we used the paraffin IF in general in less than 10% of the cases. And for unmasking, that was about one third of the cases. So we're talking about 3% of your biopsies might have that. And that depends a lot on what is the ratio of transplant patients that you're going to have. This is, not, this, is, this, is, this, is, this is something that is going to work much more. This is the ratio in patients that have... Um, native diseases. So in transplant, it is really not frequent at all. So if you have a population that is more transplant-based, you're not going to see that very often at all. So in your second case, in that uh, triple MG case, you mentioned about pregnancy. Uh, is that associated with pregnancy? The triple MG, is there any evidence? Associated, I'm sorry, with what? With a pregnancy, I, I believe you mentioned. Oh, the third case, the third case. Yeah, yes. Uh, we have seen it and we don't know the reason, but many patients, they either, had, they, they either had just had a pregnancy or they are pregnant. So there was an association. And uh, the speculation is that maybe some autoimmune phenomena happens during the pregnancy. Maybe there's some exposure of something that might lead to some interfer interference on the etiology of this disease. But definitely there was a, for us, it's kind of a young patient with history of pregnancy. And um, 
on the light microscopy. So I mean, the truth, I would think of preeclampsia as often as I would think of, uh, remember this, like glomerulopathy, if we had uh, uh, some degree of proteinuria. So I actually have one case that I uh, worked out last weekend uh, from Dr. Chung. Uh, mm -hmm. it, it is a pregnant lady with uh, negative original IF, but uh, pronounced IF is positive, but it doesn't look like membranous. It looks more subendothelial deposit. So do you have any comment? Do you have any experience with that? And as I told you, after we did the SAP stain, we found out that the, that disease in particular that we call membranous-like can have other variants as well. I've seen with mesangin, I have seen with subendothelial, I've seen a little bit more proliferative rather than the typical membranous. Um, this case might be worth for you to send out. I don't know if Mayo is doing it, but Arcana does for SAP stain. And see if you would find that on that one. That's probably what I would do. Thanks. You're welcome. Thank you, Nidia. Are there any more questions? Oh, if there's no more question, I can ask another one. So uh, <laughs> we have a lot of cases that we call the C3GN, uh, you know, because we have a big C3 over here. Oh, uh, but will you suggest that we do uh, unmasking for all of our C3 cases? I think that you have a lot of C3 and you, you have good experience with C3. So you know, in a way, the looks of the electromicroscopy, definitely I would not do on DDD, but on C3s that are kind of a, a little bit more off or that in terms of morphology, is it a C3 with more proliferation and less of an MPGN pattern, for example, or maybe those are worth to do it. Monoclonal associated diseases, autoimmune disorders. If you have other things that could make you think that this is not a C3GN, a pure C3GN, it might be worth to do the paraffin IF. Thanks. Thank you, Nidia. That was a great talk. And we look forward to collaborating and uh, um, having you come over here in person at some point soon in the future. And uh, thanks everyone for attending. Pleasure to be here. Thank you everyone. And thank you for the <laughs> participation of the audience. I know it's not as easy on Zoom. I appreciate your time. All right. Thank you. Take care. Bye, Bye now.